millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam, and this episode's guest is Constantine Kissin. Thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism on Patreon, PayPal, with Bitcoin or Swish 0046-768-943737. Constantine Kissin is a Russian-British comedian and political commentator. Kissin regularly writes for a number of publications, including Kilet, The Spectator, The Daily Telegraph and Standpoint, on issues relating to tech censorship, woke culture, comedy and the so-called culture war topics. He has hosted Trigonometry since 2018, a YouTube channel and podcast featuring fellow comedian and co-host Francis Foster. The show is dedicated to free speech and open discussion on a range of controversial topics, featuring guests from diverse backgrounds. He is also a soon-to-be-published author. We will be discussing his background and understanding of the Russian aggression on Ukraine, what he thinks will happen, what we in the West can do, both to help Ukraine and to help ourselves, a multipolar world, what China will do now, and his coming book, Konstantin Kessin. Uh, welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism, Konstantin Kessin. It's a pleasure to have you back. I'm sorry about last time. I've been having angst and neurosis about it, as I should, being a Jewish comedian. And um, <laughs> you, how have you been? Uh, yeah, man, it's, it's all good. Obviously, I, I'm sure we'll talk about Russia and Ukraine, which is uh, is a big thing that's happening now that I have family involved in. So it's not been an easy time. Uh, but in, in other ways, everything is good. Everything is good. Uh, trigonometry is going well. My own work is going well. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to be back with you. You're winning. The West is losing. All is well. <laughs> exactly. As a, If you know my co-host, Francis, he used to have a very smart but very cynical girlfriend who used to say, everything that's bad for the world is good for trigonometry. And I think that's kind of what we're finding out. Well, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm afraid to say the same goes for my show. Um, mm. 
So, uh, so many congratulations, Aaron. <laughs> and the same to you, Constantine. <laughs> um, I'm glad we could joke about it right off the bat. But uh, uh, you, uh, your background is actually you're Russian British, mm. and Jewish. well, more than that, and Jewish, and also Ukrainian. Partly, my my mum is Ukrainian. My wife is Ukrainian. I have many fa- uh, friends and family in Ukraine. Uh, Mostly, I would say, pro-Ukrainian, a few pro-Russian. Almost all of them on both sides of that divide Russian speakers uh, and ethnically Russians, many of them. Uh, So it's a a conflict that I go to Ukraine and to Russia regularly, uh, particularly Ukraine in recent years, several times every year. I speak to people. I I know people in the political circles, in the military circles, etc. So it's, it's a conflict I understand from the inside. Yeah, and and but you grew up in uh, Saint Petersburg, was it? Or no, I grew up all over the place. I I was born in Moscow. I lived there for some time. Uh, then uh, my family lived in Uzbekistan. Still, this is in Soviet times, so it was still the same country at that time for some time. Then back to Moscow. But I used to spend many summers on my grandfather's farm in Ukraine, uh, near Dnipro, in in the southern part of Ukraine, w- w- where m- most of my family live now. Uh, I have in-laws north of Kiev. I met my wife in Kiev 20-odd years ago. Uh, so I've been all over the place, uh, Russia, Ukraine, etc. So uh, that's kind of where, how I, I feel that I know a lot about you know, what the attitudes of people are on the ground. And why did you emigrate to the West? My parents sent me to school. Uh, they, uh, they, there was a very short period of time in my family's history when my, my parents had money. Uh, and they basically used all of that to send me to a school in England, which I'm eternally grateful for. And you decided to stay. Why? Uh, well, it's it's really the subject of my upcoming book called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Uh, the reason I decided to stay is uh, I like it here. I think uh, the cultural values and the resulting economic and political and cultural landscape that that is created on the basis of those values is better than other countries, including some of the countries that I used to live in when I was younger, or the countries that I visited as an adult even. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the West is great. Uh, and I, I, all of the work that I've really done, particularly with trigonometry in the last four years, has been about trying to remind people of what I think is a very simple fact, and to suggest that maybe we shouldn't throw that away uh, over, you know, disputes about cultural issues or whatever else it might be. Uh, that has uh, uh, been my perception of you, and I have been on a, a similar. I, I really object to the term crusade because it doesn't suit me. But uh, uh, here, in... what would a Jewish crusade be called? I wonder. <laughs> uh, I don't know, since we don't convert anymore. I mean, we right. we haven't converted people since biblical times, and then mm. basically it was because it was messy when you we have to take that many foreskins in you know one day. With simple exactly. tools. So, uh, yeah. But um, that's what the world needs, Aaron, to get even crazier than it already is the Jews <laughs> suddenly to come back and, and start expanding. Yeah, that would be uh, interesting adding to the mix. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, I, 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 I watched uh, quite a few of the clips, or I think all of them actually, and some of them several times uh, since the conflict broke out, I, I, I think 24 days ago. Mm. And um, you asked, uh, at, in one clip, you asked, what is it you want? 
uh, as <laughs> West. And I don't know if I qualify being born in Scandinavia, uh, but uh, since you were asking, uh, energy independence, uh, mm-hmm. an army, uh, preferably not a feminist one, which is what mm-hmm. we've got now here in Sweden, uh, and uh, a first a return to first principles. Yeah, you know, well, uh, freedom I'm of speech, fully... ownership, individualism. Yeah, where do I sign up, Aaron? <laughs> no, I just <laughs> um, uh, because I've been um, I, I, I've done two podcasts on this. I'm uh, not an expert on Russia or Ukraine. Uh, I do enjoy uh, geopolitics. It's like. Uh, what I suppose Champions League is for most people. Mm. Uh, yes, quite a cynical stance, I know. You don't have to guilt trip me. I, I understand it's wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh, my first two podcasts about this uh, was basically because I read his speech, the Putin speech, and I read his historical essay, which mm-hmm. was hard to understand, by the way. Was it? Uh well, yeah, when you get into the different types of Bolsheviks, I can't really tell the difference, to be honest. <laughs> I think they're all socialists. and They're all uh, a red menace. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but uh, this is, as far as I can tell, his bid for a multipolar world. Uh, yes, look, th- there are different interpretations of it. Uh, I uh, think it's true that both China and Russia have been saying for some time uh, that we 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 don't want to live in a unipolar world in which the Americans dominate everything. Uh, I think from China's perspective, that makes sense to me because economically and in terms of population and in other ways, China will start to have a much more powerful role in the world. With Russia, it's a little bit different because Russia really isn't a big economy. It's a small; it has a smaller economy than Italy. It's not a huge population. Of course, it's territorially very large, and it has, you know, because of its the size of its population, a lot of resources. Uh, but it's not actually a particularly powerful country, other than the fact that it has over ten thousand nuclear weapons. And so, what is happening now is it's converting that power that it has, the power to destroy the world, into territorial expansion, uh, which, uh, having spoken, we haven't put out this interview yet, but we interviewed a former advisor to President Putin, who's since left and and moved to America, who talks about the fact that Putin is an imperialist, and he uh, has been an imperialist since 2001, only two years after he came to power, after being given power by Boris Yeltsin. So, uh, my perspective is that he, uh, we can talk about NATO and all of that, which people love to talk about. But uh, my per- perception is that, uh, irrespective of NATO expansion and any sort of provocation that supposedly he's been subject to, uh, he he was always going to do this when the opportunity presented itself. Uh, and my work, and I think your work, and the work of many other people over the last many years, has been to get people in the West to wake up and realize we don't exist in a vacuum. And if we weaken ourselves, if we weaken our civilization from the inside, if we're distracted, as you say, by feminizing our army and military um, and and all sorts of other crazy things that we've spent the last uh, five, six, seven years talking about, uh, we are going to open up uh, opportunities for other people, other actors on the international stage who will who will take advantage of it to achieve the goals that they have. And I think that's what you're seeing now. 
Yeah, because you uh, grew up outside the palace, which is what I call the West. Um, mm. And I don't have anything against getting certain individuals into the West. That's fine. But getting other civilizations into the West would be a problem, in my view. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think, uh, you know, I, it is my personal belief that Western civilization is better. However, even if you look at it from a sort of relativistic point of view, as many people like to do, I mean, you know, the history of humanity is a, a battle of civilizations, and it doesn't have to be physical necessarily, but uh, the idea that we've sort of created the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama talked about, and, and now we're going to live peacefully ever after and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, well, it doesn't turn out to be true. Now, when I was at university studying economics and politics, you know, the, 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 the message that was going around was, well, look, no two countries with a McDonald's have ever gone to war. Now, they didn't consider us maybe because everyone's too fat, but <laughs> whatever the reason for that is, right, uh, that was a lot, that was essentially a truism until 2014, where for the first time, if you call what happened in 2014 a war, that rule was broken. Let's say it wasn't back then because it was different. Well, now it certainly has. And I guess the point that I've been trying to make for a long time is this was never going to last, especially if the West refused to be strong. If you celebrate weakness, if you celebrate dividedness, if you encourage uh, movements within your own civilization that undermine and, and sabotage the very pillars that make it strong and make it what it is, you're gonna you're gonna find that other people want to fill that that power space, and I think, as I say, that's what's happening. So, do you see any? I mean, you live in England. Uh, there's mm. a lot of people, for instance, here in Sweden, who would uh, pin their hopes on uh, Boris Johnson. Believe it or not, uh, what's your stand on that? I think of the Western leaders. He's he's been one of the strongest in reacting to this. Uh, it, I don't know why. It may be for personal reasons. Uh, he's having some problems domestically, uh, and so it's it's very helpful to him to come out very strongly on this issue and to be seen to be doing something and to be seen to be leading from the front and so on. Even though, of course, the UK is probably the least threatened of Western European nations by Russia's expansion in terms of direct threat. Um, also, you're also energy independent from Russia, aren't you? Mostly, mostly. So we have less to lose by taking a strong stance. Um, but but it's interesting because if you watched our videos, one of the predictions that I made was uh, that the, this current situation would be the end of the green agenda. Uh, little Greta might not be quite as happy as she has been for a few uh, years. But actually, I mean, it is difficult to believe, Aaron, but it is happening. It seems that at least some people, including Boris Johnson, think we need more of the green agenda in response yes. to this, uh, which I find incredible, <laughs> but there we are. So we've just discovered that we have loads of gas in the North Sea uh, and so on and so forth. But instead of that, we're doubling down uh, on uh, you know al alternative sources of energy, not nuclear, of course, because that would actually solve the problem. Uh, but we have to punish ourselves for, for our prosperity. I, I know. And, and Biden preferred to call Venezuela um before digging up his own backyard or fracking. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a fascinating thing. I, I don't get it. Look, no, I'm not an expert on energy or climate, but I do find it odd that in, in the situation where you have readily available energy of your own 
and an ability to produce energy of your own using nuclear energy. Uh, instead of that, we seem to be insistent that we must buy this energy from evil dictators around the world, whether that's Saudi Arabia or whether that's Russia or whether that's Venezuela. doesn't make much sense to me, but who, who am I? We're just comedians. Well, I'm very sorry to hear that from uh, one of the cradles of individualism uh, and, and uh, Western civilization, which is England. I mean, mm. uh, here in Sweden, um, uh, I, I'm not surprised, although I am disappointed, but I'm not surprised to see that we will be doubling down on uh, gender institutes, gender science institutes, and gender science agencies, and we will still not be opening up any new nuclear plants, and we will definitely increase our amount of pride festivals. Uh, because Putin seems to be horrified of pride festivals. Yeah, he, he must be uh, quaking in his boots as, as this is happening. And this is Aaron, you know, Joe, we're joking, but I've kind of made this point in recent days is, uh, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that necessarily Russia is that civilization, but just as a general thing, because this is historically inevitable, what happens when a civilization like ours that now believes that diversity is our strength encounters a civilization that believes strength is strength. Well, I'm going to put my money on strength is strength uh, because it seems like an, a, a pragmatic approach uh, to a very cold yeah. world order. Uh, I, I personally am not entirely a reali realist. That's why I said return to first principles because mm. as you, I think they're worth, worth defending. Uh, I just don't see us doing it. And Sweden not doing it is not surprising. I mean, our prime minister went out the other day and said we will not be joining NATO because that would further destabilize the situation, which also happens to be exactly what Putin wants, Sweden not joining NATO. So I don't know. Yeah, but well, yeah. it sounds like, you, you, uh, you know, uh, there's a fear there that what's happening in Ukraine might happen to Sweden, I suppose. Uh, which I don't know how rational that is, but I, I think that's probably what's driving it. Um, but look, and by the way, look, when I make the point about you know civilizations that that think that I, I don't I don't think uh, having a multi-ethnic society or society that respects people's right to live their life as they want or whatever, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just don't think that that is what makes you strong. So we can have diversity and also be strong. But the way you are strong is by not pushing diversity as the main objective. And I, uh, we saw as comedians, I'm sure you'll, you'll be aware of this, we saw this in comedy, when instead of trying to make the best comedy shows, they started trying to make the most diverse comedy shows. And, and what happens? Well, you don't end up with the best comedy show. And it's the same, as you point out, with the military. It's the same with the civilization. It's the same with anything else. So, yes, a return to first principles, which is, uh, of course, we want to create tolerant, uh, liberal societies and liberal democracies. Uh, and I think the best way to do that would be uh, to make sure that we're able to protect those societies and those values from people who would rather destroy them. I agree. Just before the war broke out 24 days ago, uh, the big uh, Swedish cultural debate was about stand-up and the new code of conduct that certain feminist comedians would like all comedians to sign. Mm. So, and what uh, did it say? No, you know, it was about uh, you had to greet everyone uh, uh, when you came to the club and uh, you had to stay until the last person has performed and you have to watch everybody's 
performance. And of course, there were some uh, things about what you could joke about and not joke about, and especially uh, in the green room, um, mm. where you're not supposed to joke about pretty much anything, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because uh, I haven't done stand-up for a couple of years now. I'm sort of we've got plenty going on with other stuff that we're doing. I've got a, a Substack which I'm really excited about that I just started. I was writing my book as well, but when I was a comedian. The situation was that you could still make funny jokes in the green room, but you couldn't make them on stage because they were too problematic. I take it now the green room is also off limits. And uh, basically we are in position now, as Francis likes to say, uh, that uh, your WhatsApp chats with your mates are the funniest places uh, where you hear the funniest jokes because you're not going to get them on TV in a comedy club, even now in a green room, apparently. Unfortunately, that seems to be true. And people wonder mm. why I'm reluctant to return to the scene because it's not fun mm. anymore. But mm. so I was saying we're on day 24 of the war. Mm. And uh, uh, could you tell me a bit about what you think will happen now in Ukraine? Yes, it's uh, so everything I say, I have to uh, explain it a little bit carefully because it's a very explosive subject, uh, forgive the pun. and people feel very strongly on, on, on different sides of it. Uh, and I have my own view, but I also uh, understand why other people have a different view, okay? So the, the reason I'm saying this is if I were in Ukraine and if I were Ukrainian and my home was being attacked, I would be fighting to defend my country right now. Whether that's directly on the front line or whether that's doing what I'm doing and raising lots of money or helping the, the communications of it or whatever, but I'd be involved in it and I'd be fighting to defend my country. And I have nothing but admiration and respect for Ukrainians who are bravely doing that. And they're doing very, very well against a much stronger, much more numerous, much more powerful army. And the Russian effort is really, really struggling. Uh, they're having technical problems. <laughs> they had uh, the Russians built a, an encrypted communication system that only works with three and four G towers, which they spent the first part of the war destroying. So they now have to call each other on mobile phones, which are being constantly intercepted. And so uh, their communications are, are, are all completely screwed up. Uh, they're having all sorts of other issues. Uh, the morale in the Russian army is low. It turns out that many of the rations that their soldiers have been given uh, are out of date and, and the newer ones are being sold on Russia's equivalent of eBay and on and on it goes. The Ukrainians are fighting very well to protect themselves. But I also think that if the Western position remains what it is, which is to provide Ukraine with just enough support that the Ukrainians can keep fighting, but not enough support that the Ukrainians can win, uh, then all you're likely going to see is a much longer, much more drawn-out conflict, the result of which will nonetheless be a, a, a victory for Russia. Now, it's, it's going to be at a cost of very high casualties. It will probably be a Pyrrhic victory in that the cost of that victory will be so dramatic for Russia that it cripples the economy for decades. Uh, it cripples... Uh, Russia's, well, obviously international standing uh, and so on and so forth. And I, I am not sure that Russia will recover even in my lifetime from what's happened uh, in, in this instance because of the economic impact and so on. 
But if the Western response continues to be what it is, and I can understand why the Western response is what it is, because like like this uh, Putin advisor we interviewed yesterday, which we'll, we'll put out in the next few days, you know, his argument is, you know, Putin isn't going to use nuclear weapons. He just isn't. And he has some data points that he would argue are, you know, support that that argument. But at the end of the day, if you're President Biden, if you're Boris Johnson or whoever, and you are considering, you know, shooting down Russian planes, which is what a no-fly zone would mean, or sending your own troops to Western Ukraine to protect supplies or whatever, you are risking nuclear war because you you, you don't have 100% clear data about Vladimir Putin, his intentions, his state of mind, et cetera. So you, that is a risk, and I can understand why Western governments don't want to take that risk. But if they don't, then it's my opinion given the military situation, even though Russia is really struggling to achieve its objectives, what it is doing is slowly closing the noose around the Ukrainians' army's neck. They are almost have almost surrounded Kiev, the capital, uh, almost encircled it. Uh, they're making moves from the south, the north, and the east, and what they're trying to do is trap the, the bulk of the Ukrainian army in the eastern part of the country. And if they can close that pocket, if they can uh, take Kiev, uh, and uh, form a line along the Dnieper River, they have a very strong chance of winning the war. And it does seem to me that, at, like I say, if the West doesn't provide more support, which I'm not necessarily saying it should, uh, then the the Ukrainians are going to put up a brave fight. They're going to you know, inflict huge casualties on Russia. Ukrainians will also suffer heavy casualties, and many Ukrainian civilians will die because... As Russia gets more desperate, their bombardments are going to get more indiscriminate. They're going to use bigger and heavier weapons uh, and so on. And, and so, you know, what's happening is a tragedy. And my concern is we, we kind of need to, we need to make, we in the West certainly need to make a decision. Are we trying to help Ukraine win or are we just going to help them extend the agony for, 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 for longer so that both sides take more casualties? As someone who has many friends and family who are going to be the people who are going to be dying, <clears throat> I'm torn on that issue. Uh, I'm not saying the West should, should you know, start shooting down Russian planes. I'm also not saying the West should just in, encourage Ukrainians to surrender because Ukraine, it's up to Ukrainians what they do with their country. So, uh, I, and I know that's a bit of a sort of sitting on the fence position, but I am genuinely torn and I'm just being honest about how I feel about it. I'm going to say something cynical and heartless now. Um, That's very unlike you, Aaron. <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, I think from a Western perspective, not a Ukrainian perspective, hmm. there is a, a, a strategical point of turning Ukraine into a sort of Viet European Vietnam, where hmm. you suck in Russia and you 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 sort of surge in. Uh, guerrilla warfare type weapons for years and mm. years and years and mm. years. Uh, mm. That is uh, one way they could go. And then uh, another way they could go, I think I've seen you talk about, which is uh, to accept a compromise uh, that they will, that Ukraine will lose uh, Crimea and they will lose Donetsk and Luhansk, if that's how you mm. pronounce it. Uh, and, yes, it is. Uh, uh, what I, what I, what what I'm wondering about is uh, is Kiev, for instance. Uh, mm. Will the Russians insist on keeping Kiev? Well, it depends on how the war goes. So this is why 
you're right, I was saying this will end with some sort of compromise, likely. Now, again, it depends on many things that we don't control that may change between now and then. But uh, it is possible that the compromise would be something like Russia gets to keep Crimea, the two independent so-called breakaway regions, Donetsk and Lugansk, which you mentioned, they become independent. Now, for people who are only listening, I'm using inverted commas because uh, they're not going to be independent, obviously. They're, they're, they're going to be run from Russia as they have been for the last eight years. Um, and of course, they will eventually be incorporated into, into Russia, probably quite quickly. Um, and uh, then it's a matter of the structures of government and so on. Zelensky may even remain in power, but he may have a, a Russian or pro-Russian prime minister appointed under him who will actually have de facto control. And it will be Zelensky's job to sell to the Ukrainian people the compromise deal that's then agreed. Um, there will probably be a cultural reorientation of Ukraine. So Ukrainians made a big move to move in a sort of Ukrainian national identity direction. And I, I would argue that they made some mistakes along the way because they were reacting to Russian aggression and to Russia attempting to impose its dominance. An action of that nature causes a strong reaction. And I think they made some mistakes in that area, you know, preventing uh, dual language on television, for example, which was, would have been acceptable to the vast majority of Ukrainians having programs that were mix, a mix of Russian and Ukrainian. They banned Russian language from some uh, public broadcasting and, and other things of that nature. Um, so the, the, that will be probably be another thing that Russia tries to get is a sort of cultural reorientation, the, the reintroduction of the Russian language as a, a national language. And, and things of that nature. And also there's the real sticking point, which is the so-called denazification. Uh, yes. Putin have, having invented the myth that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis and that uh, Jewish comedian President Zelensky is, is in charge of a Nazi country. Um, he now has to deliver on that promise by getting rid of some of these so-called Nazis. Now, we should say for balance that Ukraine, uh, like all countries in Eastern Europe, does have a historical you know, problem with far-right ideologies, with anti-Semitism, et cetera. And there are some, a small number of those people who do exist in Ukraine, and some of them are fighting now in the army, which you'd expect uh, when a country comes under attack, you know, the people who are angry and aggressive and, and uh, of that way of thinking are going to be part of its resistance. Um, a big discussion so, here, because we sent, as a neutral country, we've never sent, not officially at least, uh, weapons hmm. to countries at war, but... We sent a lot of, uh, you know, anti-tank guns, uh, and uh, there was uh, quite a few among the Swedish far left on Twitter who were discussing the Azov battalion, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, one could see that some of the first Swedish anti-tank guns arrived to that battalion. Mm. Yeah, and the Azov battalion is populated. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Almost, almost predominantly by Nazis, you would say. Uh, You've got to remember they're a small minority and there's, histori- there's a very long historical thing we can get into if you want me to. Absolutely. I do from. want you to. Please talk. I, I was going to ask about Bandera anyway. Okay, perfect. So uh, in, in order to talk about Bandera, we have to talk about the historical context which existed at the time. So Ukraine at that moment in time was part of the Soviet Union. Uh, and only part of Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Most of what is now Western Ukraine, so not everything, but almost everything that is West of Kiev was not Soviet territory in 1939. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you think about how World War II started, the official version that everyone in the West thinks about is Nazi Germany, after taking all sorts of other territory, invaded Poland, and we went, we the West went, that's too far, you know, we're coming in and we're going we're gonna to fight. What actually happened is at the very moment that Hitler invaded Poland, he had a deal with Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, to invade Poland at the same time. And what actually happened is they divided Poland, Hitler got West, Western Poland, and the Soviet Union got a much bigger part of Poland and other countries, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Bukovina, and other, other parts. Eventually, they essentially divided Eastern Europe between them and the Soviet Union got what is now Western Ukraine, right? Now, in a small part of that Western Ukrainian section, prior even to that part becoming Ukraine or becoming part of the Soviet Union, there was a Ukrainian nationalist movement, which was very small, represented probably about 1% of the local population, um, who were opposed to the Polish state, and of course opposed equally to the Soviets who took over that part of the country. They wanted independence. And like many parts of Western and Eastern Europe at that time, uh, there were fascist movements in that area. Uh, They were absolutely, and we should be very clear about it, Bandera and his people were 100% fascists, and they didn't support the Nazis because the Nazis were their route to liberation. They supported the Nazis first and foremost because these were people with the same ideology as they had. And during World War II, once uh, the Soviet Union was invaded by Nazi Germany in 1941, these people tried to side with the Nazis and their main activities during the war were fighting Soviet partisans and butchering and massacring local Polish and Jewish populations because uh, the, the, the demographics of that part of the world at the time were essentially this. The Poles and the Jews lived in cities and the Ukrainians lived in the countryside. And so they envied and resented the wealth of the cities where it was concentrated and the poverty that, that they were living in. So you have this historical fascist movement, which was a tiny portion of the population, who became uh, a part of the Nazi machine but eventually had a falling out with the Nazis because what the Ukrainian fascists wanted was independence for Ukraine. 
and the Nazis just wanted to use them for their own purposes. And so uh, the, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists had split into two, uh, into two parts, one which was happy to serve the Nazi overlords and one which became Bandera's lot, who, who tried to be independent as much as they could. And eventually some of their leaders ended up in Sachsenhausen, uh, the, 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 the concentration camp in Germany. Almost all of them survived the war. And in fact, the Nazis moved them out of the Soviet-occupied area before the Soviets came in to save their lives. So that's where it comes from. And this is where we come back to some of the mistakes that I think were made by the Ukrainians post-2014, when they went, look, we've just been had pieces of our territory annexed by Russia. We need to really foster a national identity so that we can defend ourselves. And in doing so, they started reaching out into the past for people who they could call Ukrainian national heroes, the people who always fought against the evil Soviet oppressors. And in doing so, they made a few mistakes, including promoting Bandera as this great national hero of Ukraine to fight the Soviet myths about Ukrainians, how all Ukrainians welcomed the Germans and, and all of that, which wasn't true at all. Well, uh, they should have I looked into think... the future where yeah, Zelensky was and they could have used him, you know, quite, preemptively. Quite, but but he wasn't a national hero at the time, I'm afraid. Uh, he, his hero status is only sort of coming to the fore now. And so, you know, as I say, I think uh, there's a few sort of own goals that have been scored in the process of trying to build a new national identity for Ukraine and attempting to deny the existence of a neo-Nazi battalion in the Ukrainian army or deny this dark element of Ukrainian history uh, are not going to work. They, they are wrong. However, as someone with dark skin and Jewish heritage who grew up in 1990s Moscow, I can tell you that the neo-Nazi problem in Eastern Europe is not confined to a small part of Ukraine. <laughs> There's uh, gangs of skinheads roam, roaming the streets of Moscow looking for Jews, looking for uh, people from the Caucasus, the so-called dark-skinned people that they would say black people have always been in terrible danger in Russian cities because of the racism and prejudice, for primarily from skinheads. Uh, there is a video of the guy who was the deputy prime minister of Russia, uh, Ragozin. I encourage people to look this up, who now heads uh, the equivalent of Russian uh, NASA, uh, the uh, Roscosmos uh, agency, uh, who is on camera doing a Nazi salute while talking about how Moscow is a Russian city and these filthy Chechens must be kept out of here, the darkies that must be kept out. So the, to present Ukraine as this like lonely beacon of neo-Nazism in Eastern Europe is completely a historical and completely a factual to what's happening now. All of these countries have a problem with this issue. Uh, and uh, the same with corruptions. The corruption, there's this, uh, you know, the people on the both the anti-war uh, and the sort of uh, anti-Western left in the West have gone oh, and now banging on about, oh, Ukraine's just this corrupt country. And people, sadly for me, on the sort of uh, anti-establishment right, uh, they are becoming very similar in this way. They've, they, they didn't know where Ukraine was on a map two weeks ago, but they did some Googling and now they're great experts in what's happening. And so they go, oh, well, Ukraine's actually a corrupt country and, and whatever. And of course it is a corrupt country. Uh, but to, to suggest that the country that's invading it is not a corrupt country run by oligarchs is quite amusing. Uh, apparently there's some revelations that Zelensky is somehow involved in the Pandora papers, which we, we, we heard about a few years ago, which revealed uh, money laundering in 
in offshores. Uh, of course, what people who talk about that forget is that Vladimir Putin was outed as the world's richest man by those revelations. Yeah. He has billions of dollars stashed away in Western countries. And by the way, uh, not nearly, not only for his own benefit, a lot of that money is being used to fund Russian uh, disinformation and Russian uh, attempts to undermine the West in the West and has been for, for decades. Uh, so the point, my point, the point I'm making is it's a very complicated situation. There is a history of anti-Semitism and Nazism in all of Eastern Europe and frankly in Western Europe as well. And of course, when you get engaged in the military conflict, you know, in a war, the worst elements of society are the ones that are going to be on the front lines, that you're going to get the best people and the worst people fighting. And yeah, I mean, look, if my country was under attack, I'll be honest with you, even as a Jew, I probably would be quite comfortable with a few mental Nazis who are quite good at killing each other, being on the front lines defending the country. That's what happens in war. And the responsibility for the atrocities that are being committed, for the people who are dying, for the civilian deaths, for the fact that Ukrainian soldiers and Russian soldiers are being butchered in their thousands, is on the people who started this war and on nobody else. Okay, but let's say then that uh, Putin uh, and Ukraine reach an agreement mm. and they get Crimea, they get Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, uh, they get uh, Ukraine to agree to be a neutral mm. country, demilitarized perhaps, uh, mm -hmm. never to enter NATO, uh, mm -hmm. maybe not even join the EU. That to me is unacceptable. If, That's if, not acceptable. No, but, but, but what I'm saying is, if that, that would be the case, let's just speculate. Yes. Um, then uh, that if if uh, attacking Ukraine is uh, Putin's bid of breaking unipolar unipolarity in the world, then uh, mm. he would have succeeded. Would he? Have, would he not? I agree with that. Which is why, if you remember, when I talked on Question Time, this BBC program, where I think you, you would have seen clips from, when I talked about if there is a compromise solution, the, the other side of the compromise has to be some kind of peacekeeping force that guarantees future Ukrainian security. Now, I'm not saying the West is looking to do that right now. It seems to me that it's not. But anything other than a physical guarantee of Ukraine's future security would be a capitulation to President Putin. There's no question about that. I agree with you. Yes, and I have a hard time seeing Putin agreeing to that because that would be the same as joining a military alliance against them. Quite. So, like I said, it all depends on how the war goes. And the more territory he's able to take, the, the more the damage that's done to the Russian army. Uh, it really depends which one of those things happens. Uh, so we are, I, I can't predict what will happen uh, beyond, uh, beyond what I've already said, really. Neither uh, it, can I. Really... I just listen to the voice yeah. of God in my head and, <laughs> <laughs> and repeat. Uh, yes. Uh, no, but uh, because uh, if if that would happen, uh, which I, I, I think is uh, quite likely at the moment, mm. Mm. Uh, then I don't see what would stop China from taking Taiwan. Mm. And Russia will be a vassal state of China in some respect, wouldn't it? I know very little about China. I try not to talk about it. Uh, I, I want to educate myself, but on China, I am in your position, which is I have thoughts 
but where they come from is is uh, questionable, and so I try not to speak them out loud too much. But of course, uh, broadly speaking, on a very broad level, you know, we've got to remember the Chinese are their own civilization; they have their own values and their own approach. Uh, but yes, in a world in which the West allows people to take uh, the territory of their neighbors, it's hard to see why China wouldn't try to recapture, as they would see it, Taiwan, whether militarily or otherwise. Well, I'm just, I go by what people say and I contrast it to what they do. And mm. uh, the, on the 4th of February, I'm sure you're aware, uh, China and Russia uh, published uh, uh, sort of an agreement between them for closer corporations mm -hmm. on all levels of society. And then China didn't vote to condemn Russia in the Security Council nor in the General Assembly. And uh, they sent $190,000 to Ukraine as support, which is, uh, I don't speak diplomacy fluently, but I believe that's a fuck you. Mm -hmm. um, mm. So and um, so, but they also haven't fully come out on the side of Russia, uh, as I understand it. So they, are, I don't think they're particularly keen, based on my understanding. And again, remember what I said: I'm not an expert on this, but from what I am hearing, uh, they are being careful. I don't think they want any part of this snafu. They've seen that the West's reaction has been quite strong. Uh, and I'm not sure they're particularly interested in in having loads of wars going on all at once necessarily. That doesn't mean that they might not want to snatch Taiwan while, while everyone's looking the other way. Um, but I think they are interested in stability uh, for the moment, based on what I'm hearing. So it remains to be seen. It's just uh, curious because I said, or at least that was my analysis, um, and uh, I hope I don't offend you now, but... My analysis, uh, well, after a week of war was basically we're now in a zero-sum game against Russia and uh, the zero-sum we're competing in is suffering and uh, you don't really want to get in that type of competition against Russians because they're used to it, aren't you? It's true, uh, but you've also got to remember, you know, uh, that I, I... So, look, of course... Uh, military losses are not going to deter Russia entirely. Uh, sanctions are not going to deter Russia in the short term. Uh, Russian people are used to not having a lot of food, not having the luxuries of, of, of Western civilization. Uh, they, many of them have grown up uh, in the Soviet Union where many of the things that we now take for granted, particularly in the West, didn't exist. And going back to those is not the same as you or me or someone else just losing all of that straight away. But you've also got to remember that the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990. So essentially everyone of my age uh, onwards, I was born in 1982, didn't really grow up in the world into which Russia is going to descend again now. Uh, people are predicting that essentially all of the economic growth that Russia has experienced since the collapse of the Soviet Union is going to be rolled back literally over the course of the next year or two. Uh, that is a level of impoverishment that a significant portion of the Russian population, you've got to remember, uh, life expectancy for a Russian man is 64. So if anyone under 40, like me, is essentially not prepared for this mentally, 
that's a significant portion of the country. It's not 20 year olds only. It's quite a lot of people now who don't have that experience of living in complete poverty uh, and uh, you know struggling and fighting for, for food in the supermarket. So over time, I think the sanctions will have a very significant effect. Does that mean it will weaken Putin's regime? Probably not, but it will weaken Russia. Uh, it will uh, pro quite possibly weaken people's faith in the leader because you've got to remember as well, one of the central pillars of Vladimir Putin's genuine success and popularity in Russia is that he brought in stability and prosperity after the crazy 90s that Boris Yeltsin oversaw. So as those things evaporate, plus the military losses, plus the loss of reputation, plus the fact that, uh, you know, it may be difficult as if this really be, does become Cold War II, may be difficult for Russians to travel abroad, something to which they're quite used to now. You've got to remember, in the Soviet Union, you, you couldn't go abroad. You couldn't have a holiday in Turkey or go to Sharm el-Sheikh as a tourist like many Russians are now used to. Uh, you, you know, if you wanted to go to the sea, it was the Black Sea. That was yeah. it, right? If you wanted to have a holiday, you'd go on a walking trip in Siberia or in Karelia or whatever. That wasn't necessarily uh, what people have enjoyed in the last 30 years. Uh, do they want to go back? To, to that type of holiday? Do they want to go back to that kind of life? That remains to be seen. And short-term and medium-term and long-term, you could have completely different outcomes. In the short-term, I think uh, Putin's popularity is rising as it is, as is Boris Johnson's popularity in England because, and in Britain in general, because people do want to side with their leader in the time of war. That tends to be what happens. But as things go on longer and longer, you mentioned Vietnam, you know, this could be a Vietnam for the West, but it could also be a Vietnam for Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, the impact of that on Russia is difficult to predict. Well, that's, uh, yeah. And and uh, and you, I wanted to know that when I said that about making Ukraine into a European Vietnam, I mm. wasn't saying it uh, uh, like I was hoping for it to happen. Because... Yeah, you're not rubbing your hands with glee. I understand. And, you know, I, as you know, I'm not very uh, I'm uh, not very easy to offend. You and I are having a conversation about just some issues. Uh, I don't see why anyone should take offense to anything we say, really. No, because if that would happen, I think the amount of refugees would completely destabilize Europe and Europe would be, uh, well, the chessboard, the other great powers, including you on your cozy little island, mm. uh, would play the great game on. I don't know about that. I mean, uh, I think when we talk about refugees and destabilization, of course, the numbers are large, uh, but you've got to remember that uh, not all refugees are created equal. Uh, you talked about bringing in a foreign civilization in the past. Ukrainians uh, are pretty close in, in their mentality to the Western world. They're not entirely aligned. They're different, but they're close. They've wanted to move West for a long time. Uh, even in the, in the 90s, it was always used to make me laugh, but I can see that process. Uh, everything good in Ukraine was always called euro. So if you if you know what double glazing is, where you have two plates of glass in a window, uh, when this became available in Ukraine for the first time, it was called euro windows, right? Mm. And if you uh, think about the lawns, like getting a really good quality lawn in front of your house or in some kind of park, that was called euro lawns because we didn't have that quality. So Ukrainians had a Western focus, at least a large portion of their society. So integrating a couple of million smart, 
young Western oriented people who many of whom speak English, many of whom have a similar cultural attitude, many of whom are come from a Christian background is not necessarily the same as integrating people who are coming from a different culture with a different religion, with a different worldview. Um, so I, I think I am less concerned about Ukrainian refugees destabilizing the West because I know Ukrainian people, uh, they're very hardworking, uh, very smart, very adaptable, and they wouldn't be coming to the West to impose their own culture or to live in their own ghetto. Uh, they'd be coming to the West to integrate, uh, to make a life for themselves and their families. And by the way, most of them will want to go back to Ukraine. Uh, so we're not talking about 2 million people who want to come and live in the West. We're talking about 2 million people, 90%, I would think, of whom in an ideal world will try to come back uh, to Ukraine when things stabilize. Um, and in the meantime, they just need food, shelter, and protection, which people in Poland and people in Slovakia and people in many countries in the region are providing, and which the rest of the West is providing financial support uh, to make happen. You know, we raised in our own small way, 55,000 pounds in about an hour and a half on trigonometry for humanitarian charities in Poland and others that are helping there. I think there's been a big humanitarian effort. And I think, of course, in the short term, the idea to many Western people that 2 million or 3 million people are going to flee the country into Western Europe sounds like a lot. And given the waves of mass immigration that we have had, which have destabilized our societies, I can understand people's concerns. But I, I would just say, I think a lot of that a refugee flow is temporary. These are people who want to go back. Uh, and the rest is people who uh, who are not necessarily the same as what you're used to thinking about when you think about refugees, because these are people for whom integration will be a priority and also will be much easier. Yes. And a lot of the fleeing now are women and children. But exactly. Uh, and you're, of course, absolutely right. And it's perfectly logical. But that view is obviously, at least in in Sweden's media culture, racist, sexist and ageist. Well, how come? I, well, I'm well saying, because like, because may, maybe you, maybe you didn't want to take in uh, millions of uh economic migrants from the Middle East and Africa, but now you want to take in Ukrainians because mm. they're white. Huh. So you're racist. And uh -huh. the ones That's we took in in 2015, they were pre predominantly young men. And these are obviously women. So mm. you prefer women. Well, then you're sexist. Um, well, that's fine. I, I thought we we're fine to be sexist against men. I thought that's okay. And in that's 2015, these young men said there were children, and most of them pr probably were not. Hmm. And uh, now they're real children, uh, which means yeah. you prefer younger people to older people, which is ageist. Well, this see, uh, Aaron, this is why I've always been opposed to things that are wrong, because I know that the next time something that's right comes along, we won't be able to take the correct action in that situation. So I was opposed to the war in Iraq precisely because I knew that if we lie our way into invading other countries, then when a real military conflict comes up in which actually the West does need to act, our moral credibility and our own faith and our own leaders that they're telling us the truth will be so uh, so degraded by those previous wars and those invasions and so on that we wouldn't be able to act. And it's the same with refugees. I want, you know, Western countries, which are wealthy and powerful, uh, to use 
some of that wealth and power to help people who are fleeing war and conflict. And I've always argued, as I'm arguing in this case, that the best place for refugees is to go to neighboring countries and for Western richer countries to provide some of the resourcing to create facilities for them there so that when wars are over, they can return to their homes. Uh, instead of going, oh, you know, we the Germans, we were very bad, naughty in World War II. Now we need to compensate for this by allowing millions of people to come from a completely different culture who are going to struggle to integrate. Um, because when the real situations, the real refugee crisis do happen in Europe, we are then not going to be in a position to convince our fellow citizens that actually on this one, all those previous 10 other ones, you know, you were right about that, but on this particular one, Made, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, of course, I agree with you completely. We, 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 you know, as a society, we've made some very bad decisions, and now it's going to be a hard sell to people to go. No, no, this one's different. Yeah, I personally think that uh, you're probably right. We're going to have to accept some sort of loss in Ukraine, which will translate to a loss uh, on the world stage come, uh, when it comes to Western dominance, and then we're going to have to. Uh, hunker down as you say and rebuild uh, mm. make europe great again and scandinavia <laughs> possibly even greater uh, but um, yeah and uh, before i let you go because i know i've uh, i've kept you for a while and i mean no, getting a, you on this podcast felt like you. nag sex so um <laughs> no aaron it's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you and uh, take your time uh, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yes, of course, I've been busy in the last few weeks with everything that's going on, but it, it's it's always a pleasure to chat. Um, I, I appreciate it enormously, you should know. Uh, and I want to, uh, because before I let you go, at least, I want to ask you about your coming book. When's it coming out? What's it about? What's it called? And when mm. can I read it? Uh, the book is called uh, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. It's coming out on July 14th. It's already available on Amazon to pre-order. Uh, as soon as the, 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 it's all approved, uh, I will send you a copy uh, so you can check it out. Uh, the, I'm having some uh, fights with my publisher about uh, wanting to make some, uh, to share some things that I've experienced uh, from the inside the media world in this country and some of the things that I overheard. But because we have very, uh, very, I would say, excessive libel and defamation laws in this country. I'm having to find a way to say it so that my publisher doesn't get sued. So that's the last little snag that I'm trying to iron out at the moment. But what is it about? Well, you know, it's essentially comes back to that thing that I said before, which is what happens if a civilization decides to destroy itself from the inside. Um, I have observed, I think, as you have that process for many years now, uh, and all I'm trying to do is remind people in the West that, uh, you know, if you undermine your strength, then there'll be people who take advantage of it. And so uh, I'm trying to kickstart that process, as you identified, which is the West realizing that, of course, we should maintain the great achievements of Western civilization, like our tolerance, like the fact that we are one of the very few societies in history that are actually able uh, to have a multi-ethnic society that more or less works, particularly when we have a strong national identity into which people can buy in. And we can yeah. say, well, look, yeah, sure, I was born in Russia and whatever my ethnicity is, but I am British now because I buy in to the concepts of British values and British identity, and likewise in America. I think these are perfectly good ideas, and I'm not so advocating for, for us to, to retreat from that. 
I just don't think we should destroy ourselves in the process. We should focus on, yes, our military should be should be strong and picked based on ability, just like everywhere else, and not on some kind of uh, quotas, etc. So I'm trying to remind people why living in the West is valuable, and I try to tell them what it's like living elsewhere, because I think one of the problems for many people in the West and the reason that they uh, don't understand the value of what we have is they haven't really been or lived anywhere else. Uh, you know, and so I'm trying to explain to them what happens in other countries and how people live in other countries, and therefore, by contrast, what is good about the West. Um, so, yeah, all, all, all I'm trying to do in my very small way is just remind people that maybe we shouldn't destroy the civilization uh, that we live in. We shouldn't sow the branch on which we're sitting, um, because the consequences will not be a gradual, slow decline. It will look like what it looks like now when people try to come after us, they come to try to challenge our dominance and people die and people get hurt in the process. And we don't want that. I agree completely. That is the only uh, thing I have against you, I think. Um, but <laughs> but uh, I would love to have you back uh, to talk about your book when I've read it. Um, and I look forward to it. And thank you, Constantine thank you very much. Kissin, for uh... Thank you very much, Aaron. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Bye. You've enjoyed Deconstructive Criticism. This episode's guest was Constantine Kissin. If you want to know more about Constantine, you can find him on Twitter and in his YouTube show Trigonometry. And you can also find links to both in the description of this episode on aaronflam.com. And you will find a link to that in the description of this episode, regardless of what platform you're listening on. Thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism on Patreon, PayPal, with Bitcoin or Swish 0046-768-943737. My name is Aaron Flam. Until next, have a good unit of time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.